นโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังนมังสังฆังนมัสสะเรื่องที่สักลุ่ยเดอร์ฮาวส์ในเอเจอร์ดอยสุเทพในเชียงใหม่ในเหนือทะเลไทยแลนด์เป็นที่ที่น่ารักมากที่จะใช้เวลาในการใช้เวลาและบางทีตอนที่ผมอยู่ที่นั่นผมได้เจอไอ้มังคุดที่อยู่ในบ้านของผมไม่รู้ว่าเขาอยู่ในบ้านหรือเขาแค่ได้ใช้เวลาในที่นั่นในฝรั่งเศสและผมไม่แน่ใจว่าผมเจอเขามากกว่าครั้งThe one time I did meet him, and the conversation we had stuck with me. And here I am, forty-something years later, remembering this uh, comment that he made. And the conversation we were having came around to talking about wisdom and what is wisdom. And and he said that wisdom means being able to see things from both sides. And I was struck by that. And obviously, I've remembered that. I think I was used to hearing teachings about wisdom as insight into impermanence or unsatisfactoriness or not self or such aspects of the Buddha's teachings. However, he was saying that it was being able to see both sides of the situation you're in, and I imagine he went on to elaborate and made the point and. Yeah, as I said, it, it stuck with me, and it is so easy for us to only see one side of things. And the situations we're in, the, the judgments we make, the impressions that we hang on to, the assessments that we arrive at, are often informed by a partial perspective, a limited perspective, because we're only holding on to. That which we want to see, whereas for a being who is wise, if there's wisdom, then they're able to see the opposite as well. And I can remember listening to a talk that Ajahn Chah gave on this theme, where he mentioned. I imagine the talk was being given to to his monks, and he was talking about how he. You might want to build a dhamma hall in your monastery, and and you think it'd be great to have this dhamma hall, and you can spend two years building it, and and then you're very pleased with having this dhamma hall. However, what you don't see is that you've got to spend the rest of your life looking after it. Just just tend to think about, oh, it'd be so good to have a dhamma hall, and and similarly, he he mentioned how 
giving ordination to monks. You feel good good about giving ordination. It doesn't take very long. The ordination ceremony is not that long, and and you've done it, and there's oh, we've got some new monks. And but then what you don't see is you've got years of looking after them and teaching them, training them, and taking care of them. And, and in our situation here, I can I could similarly think about oh, our community is a bit small at the moment. We could do with some more monks or some more samaneras or anagarikas and to help get things done. However, we might end up with some more people asking to come here, but then there's all the work of sorting out visas, which these days is incredibly complicated, and sending them off for language tests and registering and paying a lot of money for access to the NHS. And so it's one thing to see things from the perspective of our preferences, what we like, according to how we've been conditioned. A wise perspective is, as this monk was pointing out, at least one aspect of wisdom, is being able to see both sides. And this is worth contemplating. We can, perhaps we can train our minds in this regard when we're faced with making a decision and we feel convinced about something. And Are we seeing this from just the perspective of our preferences or... Is there another perspective? And we can just by experiment, we can voice the other perspective to see how it fits. And can we learn from that? There's a Dhammapada verse which fits with this theme, which is verse 290, which I expect I've spoken about before, which says there's wisdom that leads to letting go of a lesser happiness in pursuit of a happiness which is greater. It is wisdom that leads to letting go of a lesser happiness in pursuit of a happiness which is greater. Another way of putting it is if we don't see wisdom, we just settle for the lesser happiness. And and we can see this, for instance, in in our meditation practice. The lesser happiness, we're just, just doing what we want, when we want, saying what we want, when we want, and moving around, and and. We hear some teachings about our oh, meditation is good, so we decide we're going to sit still for 20, 30, 40 minutes and cultivate meditation, and then, well, I want to move. Well, the lesser happiness is that. I want to move. So we move. And if we move, well, then we don't have the advantage of cultivating conscious stillness and the potential deepening and disciplining of attention, settling of the mind that might come with that exercise. It takes a certain degree of wisdom to be willing to forego that superficial, lesser level of happiness, like I want to be able to move when I want to move. It takes a a certain inhibiting the assumptions that we have to be able to consider the possibility, this other possibility. This, of course, is also the the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta that we've just been reciting, the the Buddha's first discourse, the turning of the wheel of the law, where the Buddha speaks in detail about the suffering. Most of us can own up to the fact that we suffer, although we tend to have strong habits of avoiding suffering. So first you need to learn how to go against those habits of avoiding and, and actually acknowledge, oh, this hurts, this 
this is suffering, you are suffering, whether it's like disappointment. We might feel a moment of disappointment. And, and do we have the faculties? Do we have the awareness? Do we have the interest, the inclination to direct attention? This is the feeling of disappointment. Or is our mind already imagining or are we already reacting physically, distracting ourselves, you know, looking at the phone to see if there's some interesting distraction there or eating something or going outside do we have the interest the readiness to acknowledge oh, right, this is what's happening right now because if we don't from the Buddhist perspective we don't have that interest then the chances are we're never going to get the lesson and the lesson is that's the second noble truth which is that there is a cause for this suffering which is the uninformed relationship with desire because we haven't stopped to look at desire because we have the tendency just to follow desire we haven't inhibited the impulse to stop and look at it we don't see that we, there are different ways of relating to desire you can, you can hold desire lightly and investigate it or you can cling to it and become it and get burnt by it it's a, like with with uh, the fire in the stove and, and the, uh, the reception room in the house that that wood-burning stove there is it's great so long as the fire is in the stove and it heats the room up and keeps the, the building free from damp and, and that's great. However, if you open the door and put your hand in there, well, that would be called an unwise relationship with fire, not, not based on wisdom. And Likewise, with, with the, the fire of desire, if we haven't inhibited the impulse to follow it, then we don't even suspect, probably, that there are different ways of relating to desire. So the Buddha wanted us to slow down and consider, get interested in what is the real cause of suffering in our life, what is this message that we're getting, you know, when sadness occurs, everybody experiences sadness. Can we live through the sadness and the disappointment of life without having our life defined by that? Does sadness have to get stuck in our nervous system, in our muscles, so we've got unacknowledged grief obstructing our life? Or is there a way of meeting the sadness, meeting the disappointment, and this is suffering. Of course we want to be free from suffering. Do we have to cling to that desire? Can we just let the desire to be free from suffering, free from sadness, to just be there? Do we have that perspective? And in talking about heeding these wisdom teachings uh, the Buddha has given us and uh, inspired by the possibility of realizing the self-existent ease of being that the Buddha was abiding as. We hear the Buddha talking about this and inspired by that possibility. Also, it's worth considering the place of trust or faith in our relationship to these teachings. We may value and be grateful for hearing such teachings which give our life an orientation and a direction However, just clinging to it as a belief is not clever. You know. Sometimes 
Buddhists do do this. As in, I believe in the Buddha and I believe in the Dhamma, and and then they they treat their Buddha image with a great deal of respect, and that's that's appropriate. That, that that can be beautiful. They treat the Dhamma books with a great deal of respect. That can be appropriate. And however, if all they do is keep the books dusted and 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 on the high shelf and bow down to them, but they don't actually use the instructions in those books to change the way they pay attention to life, then there's going to be limited benefit. And traditionally it's understood that the Buddha's Four Noble Truths was a, a way of diagnosing a disease, a disorder. The disorder is, is suffering. That's the disease. And there's a cause for it. And then the Buddha gave the remedy for it, the, the Eightfold Path, which you've also just been chanting. This is the remedy. This is the medicine. However, as with any medicine, if you go to see a great doctor and he gives you really good quality medicine and then you put it on a shelf and, and uh, keep it dusted and you bow to it, that's the wrong relationship to the medicine. I mean, to internalize the medicine. And, and so considering the place of trust or faith in these teachings is, is suitable. It's, uh, Blindly believing is not the same thing as trusting or having faith. And I often, when I've spoken about this before, I've often referred to what it's like when you're swimming in the ocean and, and you turn over on your back and you just float. How do we do that? How do we float on water? From one perspective, you're know, thinking about it, it shouldn't work. This, this great big heavy body should sink. And yet if we, if we want... What is it that makes the body float? It's not believing that it's possible. We could be really passionately believing that it's possible to float and be very tense and contracted and, and obstructed in our breathing. However, if we trust, if we surrender, if we relax, the body floats. That's the difference between belief and faith or belief and trust. We're not just believing. We might believe that the Buddha's teachings are great. I believe they're great. In fact, I believe they're the greatest. However, that alone is not going to save us from sinking into suffering and perpetuating suffering. Um, so moving in the direction of, of realization of the potential that the Buddha um, demonstrated is only going to happen if we exercise attention in the way that the Buddha was encouraging. So, so clinging to beliefs can lead to blind faith. And, and we've, we're probably all familiar with the consequences of blind faith. There's, a, there's an embarrassing degree of naivety around blind faith. It's kind of lazy, really. And that's, at least that's what it looks like. It's, you know, life is not straightforward. Life, this life we're living, inwardly and outwardly, is really complex. And it takes a lot of work to meet life honestly, sincerely, effectively, productively. And rather than do that work, there is the possibility of just clinging to a belief system that somebody told us about, and then indulging in blind faith. And anybody else comes along and tries to point out how naive your belief system is or how unfortunate your blind faith is, and you just dismiss them completely. And there is the characteristic of fundamentalist religions. 
or fundamentalist those belief systems of all sorts. There's a very strong feeling of conviction can come from clinging to beliefs and having blind faith, and that that feeling of conviction can be really intoxicating. You can do really stupid things, like like. Just on a mundane level, we don't get a lot of sun here in Northumberland. When the sun does shine, as it has been lately, you, can, you want to just go out there and just sit in the sun. It feels so good. What a relief, some sunshine. Just go and sit out in the sun for a few hours. <laughs> you get sunburned. And you don't have to live in the antipodes to get a malignant melanoma. It's quite possible to likewise get skin cancer from too much exposure to the sun here in Northumberland. That's not wise. We can feel convinced that it's good for us. And feeling convinced is not a good barometer. We need something more than that. And so this is why the, the Buddha shared his insight, his understandings, to share the wisdom so that we can be suspicious of the superficial level of happiness, the happiness of clinging to the familiar. That's something that we can easily do, like... With meditation techniques, we may be you know, the first technique we come across and we feel familiar with it and we feel convinced by it and grateful for it and, and, and that may be absolutely fine to start off with. However, there are some people who keep hammering away at their meditation technique when it's really not working anymore. It might have been a right to start with that technique. However, that technique or that that teaching is not necessarily what you need to be doing later on. And if we're attached to the initial enthusiasm, if we don't have the agility to let go when we need to let go, then we can be missing out. Mm. And the other extreme, of course, also is the shopping around where there's no commitment. Just keeping all the options open. No commitment at all to anything because the the pleasure of keeping all your options open can be so intoxicating. From one perspective, it might look good to keep your options open. So we try a little bit of this tradition, a little bit of that tradition, a little bit of this meditation, a little bit of that meditation, and as a result, there's no commitment and we could really be missing out on what happens if we give up the superficial level of happiness and make a commitment and risk missing out because it it can be a risk we dare to trust by way of experiment and then maybe we discover that there's a deepening a deepening of understanding a new way of seeing that comes from making a commitment a new way of seeing that comes from sitting still 20, 30, 40 minutes a day and being with doing nothing in particular being with judgment-free awareness, here and now, whole body, mind, judgment-free awareness. Not even meditating. If meditation works, that's fine. However, also just sitting still, just unplugging, just settling, letting go of following our options, following our desires, inhibiting that impulse. As tempting as that impulse can be, just by way of experiment, trusting what the Buddha said is wisdom at least letting go of a lesser happiness and pursuit of a happiness which is greater. So if we do 
find we can surrender ourselves into this experiment, into this inner inquiry that is contemplation, that is meditation. If we can commit to it, hopefully it won't be too long before we do discover that this inclination, this attitude that we've always got to keep all our options open is really superficial. There does need to be renunciation. There does need to be letting go. It's not just unwise. It's also sometimes unethical. Somebody was telling me recently that it's a thing in the restaurant business these days that people like, say, there's four people decide they're going to go out for dinner together and and, are not sure where they're going to go, so they book at four restaurants. And then they all meet up in town and, and uh, say, oh, where are we going to go? Say, okay, okay, let's go to that one. So they go to one restaurant and they cancel the other three. Or maybe they don't even bother cancelling the other three. It might feel for those, in, those four individuals like as a source of happiness to keep their options open. It's also, of course, the other people running the restaurants a considerable amount of unhappiness. And even in the monastery here, we, we uh, not so long ago we had to introduce or we we decided to introduce a, a limiting factor on people booking for retreats because it it seemed like there were quite a number of people would just cancel at the very last minute or you know, even last few days uh, cancel or not even bother to cancel at all not just turn up for the retreat and we've only got a few places on the retreat and and we have a teacher willing to lead the meditation retreat and all the places are booked up and so you know, maybe saying no to people and then and then at the last minute several people cancel and don't even turn up and and I don't know, I'm sus- I suspect that it was the case that because it did seem to happen, not really that I suspect it's the case that people get enthusiastic with the idea of doing a retreat so they just book on everything and then when it comes closer to the time oh I've got something else better to do and something else comes up and if we Look into this, if we're, if we're really honest, that following our options, keeping all our options open, and then behaving like that, you know, causing other people inconvenience. And how do we really, how do we really feel about that? And if somebody did that to us, how would we feel about it? Do we really respect ourselves for that? And this is one of the benefits of meditation of the putting time aside and of course sometimes we want to do it sometimes we don't want to do it that's normal it's like sometimes I don't want to go for a walk because my legs are sore I want to just sit in my arms here actually going out for a walk and looking at the distance and you know exercising the muscles it's good it's a good thing to do meditation likewise you know sometimes it oh I can't be bothered I'll sleep in now the lesser level of happiness, I'll just roll over and go to sleep. And then we wake up and we go, oh, I wish I'd got and meditated. So sometimes we need to inhibit that lesser happiness in pursuit of that which is more nourishing. And, and if we do this, then hopefully what we discover is that understanding such matters as what accords with integrity and what doesn't is going to arise naturally. The potential benefit of 
engaging in meditation practice and contemplation, wise reflection, is that we will start to want to let go. We'll start to want to release out of our options. What I refer to the option addiction. It's embarrassing. It's like children. You understand with children, I want this, I want that. And and for children, of course, we understand. However, when adults behave that way, I think that's that's embarrassing. We could really do better than that. Is that skillful? And asking ourselves that, asking our own heart, is that skillful, is that productive, keeping all our options open and learning to see that we want to let go of them and it's a different sort of a motivation. Now, we might feel that training ourselves to let go of our options, let go of our, our opinions is going to make us weak. And we're not talking about letting go of our opinions and not having opinions. And that's sometimes... When people hear these teachings, they assume that we're talking about not having opinions about anything, not having preferences, not having likes and dislikes. Of course, we're going to, we have likes and dislikes. And of course, we have opinions. And it's suitable sometimes to have very strong opinions. However, when another opinion comes that's actually clearly better than ours, can we let go of our opinion? That's the point. So learning to not just understand this conceptually, however, if we invest time in cultivating inner inquiry, inner reflection, until we get to the point where we actually do want to let go of our options, we want to let go of our habitual tendencies and, and see that rather than making us weak, it's more likely to make us agile, flexible, adaptable which is not a bad thing. I mean, life is so uncertain. It's, we never know what's going to hit us. And there's some wonderful things which can be great, but you know, maybe we miss them. Maybe we just attach to the wonderful things and, and spoil them. Also, some really difficult things which we wish we weren't going to attach to, but if our habit is always to attach to everything, well, sometimes we can't help ourselves and we're suffering or, loss or disappointment or fear, worry, anxiety, and we can't let go. Where did that come from? It came from clinging. It didn't come from life. So this investigation, this inquiry into hopefully getting to the point where we see that always keeping all our options open, that's okay for children. Sooner or later, if we're going to deepen, if we want to understand beyond the way things appear on the surface, then we do have to learn how to let go. This way of letting go will hopefully mean that we can accord with life without compromising integrity. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Han